In your Bibles, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I was thinking to, of this question, how can we as Christians impact our country? You know, it's just little old me, Jeff, what can I do? Well, as we look at this text today, I hope we'll get some insights and some understanding as, how, as to how God would want his children to touch their land, to touch their land. I was looking up some of the main accomplishments that America claims. Uh, some of these are non-spiritual, but we all know that there are some spiritual touches that God has used America for. We've sent out numerous missionaries through various denominational agencies to touch the world for Jesus Christ, and for that we're grateful. But America claims these as its greatest accomplishments. The first man on the moon, uh, the first mass-produced car, the Model T from 1908 to 1927, which I thought was interesting for a price of $260, you could buy a car. Boy, have times changed. The Wright brothers were the first to fly a plane, cell phones, the internet, the liberation of many nations in World War II, uh, incredible medical breakthroughs, the most sustained, prosperous economy in the history of the world. There are many things that we can say America is great for. Amen. But something's happened. We are on a decline. And I love the way Francis Schaeffer said it back in the 70s. He said, one day Americans will wake up and they'll not recognize their country anymore. And boy, are we seeing that prophecy come to fruition now. And we as Christians are wondering what in the world is going on and what in the world can we do? You know, it's, it's a very, very difficult time. Now, the easiest thing to do is complain. Many of us came in here today with problems and struggles and troubles, and we don't know what to do. And I'm not trying to minimize your individual circumstances or pain. I hope that you'll get some truth from that today as well. But as we go through this, this message is designed to kind of tackle this question. What can Christians do or what must Christians do to impact our country? If you love America, the Bible gives us instruction. And I'm going to pick this text of Scripture because it's applicable. The truths can help transform us and our land. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Peter is writing to a displaced people, a people going from their homes. They've been moved, diasporated, scattered, and their task was to let the light of Jesus Christ shine in a new place. Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, so here's what I'd like to do today. I would like to remind you of three crucial truths for the church of Jesus Christ that we must embrace. The first is this, if you're following along on your outline, we must respond as the people of God. Oh, we have got to figure out in this land, the church has to figure out who we are. If I had to give you a, a little subtitle for point number one, it's this. Remember whose you are. You are somebody, and we're going to see what that text, verse 9 says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. These are four terms that Peter is using from the Old Testament. Isaiah, chapter 43, 
Exodus chapter 19, these four titles, if you will, were originally designated for God's people, the children of Israel. In other words, God is saying to the children of Israel, I am giving you an assignment. You are to be a light to the nations. My people are to be a light to the nations. And Peter is transferring that job description to Christians. He's saying, just as I gave the assignment to the nation of Israel, so I'm giving you the same assignment. It hasn't changed. My people are to be a light to the nations. Did not Jesus say, you're the light of the world? Or to let our light shine in this world? Declare his praises? We're the salt of the earth? There needs to be something different about Christians than non-Christians. Now, I want you to kind of see this as we break it down. You're a chosen people. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So let's just start this off you know, in a way that's humbling. Everybody say this after me, please. God chose me. Go ahead. So immediately that shifts the responsibility from us to the Lord. We have been given this divine assignment from God Almighty. We're one of His. It says in John chapter 1, in verse 12, that we've been given the right to be a child of God. So let's say that to you. I'm a child of God. Go ahead. Now, we have got to get this truth in our, in our minds. Instead of worrying about all that's taking place, and I'm not saying don't discount it, but we've got to get back to following the truth. And God says, look, if you're uh, one of my kids, I chose you. I've given you the right. You have the privilege and the responsibility to call yourself one of my children. Do you see the significance of that? It starts right here. We are not of the world. We are of him. We are chosen. He said it to the nation of Israel. He says it to us. The second thing as you go through, there's a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I want you to see a key word there. It's the word holy. That word means to be set apart. In other words, the Lord's saying through his word here, my people, I chose, and I chose them to be set apart or different or holy. See, the problem the nation of Israel had is they wanted to be like all the nations around them. We want a king, just like the nation. We just want to be like them. So we're going to have Saul appointed here. The problem that you and I have is we've been given this assignment to be God's chosen people, and God tells us to be holy. Peter says other words in this book that because he's holy, we're choosing to be holy as well. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to take on the responsibility of holiness. We'd rather be like the nations that are around us. Peter's having to tell those folks, just like he's telling us here, you've got to make a decision. If you're going to be my kids, you don't get to make up your own rules. I chose you. You get to follow me. If you're going to make a difference in the lives of these people, Peter tells, tells his readers, you've got to be holy. There's got to be something unique and different about you. Now, again, God chose us, but he didn't choose us just to go to heaven when we die. He chose us to go to heaven when we die, but also to have a responsibility here and now. And it's to be a holy nation. All of us. You look around, we're all supposed to be set apart and holy before the Lord. What a divine responsibility. In other words, when you get to choose sin or choose Jesus, you choose Jesus. Sadly, the church of Jesus Christ is crumbling on this. I've been watching the... I went to the Southern Baptist Convention, but I've been reading and watching some of the, the videos that are coming out. And I'm, I'm disturbed about what's coming out of our own convention. It's, it's, 
I don't want to say scary. It's confusing. We are a confused bunch. It's like the world is telling us, okay, this is what we want Christians to be. We say, okay, well, we don't need that. This is what we're supposed to be. If you want God's blessing on your life, this is who we are supposed to be. We don't let the world tell us, okay, you're okay. One of the videos had, I won't say the name of the anchor, in the morning it said, certain characteristics should define a Christian on one of our national news shows. Man, they are so anti-biblical. I'm thinking, they have taken the definition of a Christian and turned it upside down. We don't need the world to define for us how we're supposed to be. The Bible says we were chosen and therefore we have a responsibility to be a holy nation. We're a people belonging not to the world but to Him. We're His. Amen? We're His. But we like to mud the waters a little bit. Every, there's something in the sinful nature in each one of us that likes to tell God what he should do to bless us and yet absolve ourselves of responsibility. You know, the Bible says, do not judge lest you be judged, but it's okay for us to judge. It's okay to make a good discernment, a biblical discernment. The Bible tells us to forgive those that have offended us, but we're saying, no, I'm just going to hold this grudge. When Jesus is your Lord, you don't get a choice. You do it. If he's our Lord, and he is, if you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We belong to him. Look at, look at the note on your outline there. These terms used to apply only to Israel, but now are used of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Watch this. Christians are special people because God has preserved them for himself. Friends, you're one of God's people. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I don't feel that way. Listen, truth is not dependent upon feelings. Truth is truth whether you feel it or not. We are God's representatives. Paul says to the church of Corinth, his ambassadors on this earth. That's who we are. And if we're going to make an impact on this country, it starts in our own homes. I, as the father of this home, am going to be one of God's people. I am a husband or a wife. I'm going to be one of God's people. He is my Lord. And I'm going to choose to represent him well. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I am his. The problem is we really want Jesus to be our Savior, but not our Lord. We want him to take us to heaven, keep us out of bad stuff, bless us, you know, give us comfort and ease. But we don't, any, we don't want any job assignments. We don't want to do anything. We want God to bless us, but we're not sure how much we want to praise him. Until perhaps a catastrophe or a crisis comes. And then, he, then we're all ears. You know, I, I, I remember, some of you may remember this. In 1968, there was a ministry called Teens for Christ. Remember the Teens for Christ ministry? Sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. But what happened in this group is they took a, a, a turn the rudder on their ship left some doctrinal issues and they ended up in left field pretty quickly. The founder of Teens for Christ was a man named David Berg. And in the 60s, they were able to corral some hippies and the Jesus movement. Everybody was all, all talking about Jesus at that point. And they began to come up with their own rules. And so I don't want to go into all the stuff they did, but it was nasty. Some of it was just really immoral. Some of it was just really uh, demonic, if you will. And over time, they went and got a bunch of members 
communal living, all kinds of stuff. They were going to leave this world because Jesus was coming back soon. David Berg was almost a self-appointed prophet, the David Koresh of his day. And they went, but they used the terminology, teens for Christ. Later, they changed it to the children of God. I mean, who can dispute somebody that calls themselves the children of God? And yet they had absolutely no root in Scripture. What they called themselves was totally different from what the Bible said they were. And and what's happening to us is that we're allowing the world to dictate to us how we should live. But that's not who we are. Here's the truth. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You are the people of God. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You belong to Jesus. Bottom line, end of story, exclamation point. You're his. Now, I don't think we'll understand this side of heaven. I think one day when we get in heaven, we'll understand that a whole lot better. And we should rejoice. Right now, there's too much temptation in the world, perhaps too much busyness, too much trouble to keep us from really recognizing what that means. But you're, you're a child of God. I like the way Tony Evans says, the people of God are to serve as an advertising agency in this world. You and I are bombarded with advertisements. Christians, we impact our culture. We advertise Jesus Christ. It's like I told my kids on the first day of school. I said, either they're going to influence you or you're going to influence them. And right now, they're influencing them. They're influencing us. I was listening to a sermon this morning. I've seen it, heard it several times before by uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress, First Baptist Church, Dallas. You can listen to it on oneplace.com. It's a phenomenal message on Christianity in America. And this kind of shows you how America has been uh, stolen. The Christian faith has been stolen right out from underneath our laps. He says in 1962, there was a prayer that many of you probably prayed in school. See if you remember this prayer. It's 22 words. He says, Almighty God, students, when they get to school, they pray this prayer every morning. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. End of prayer. Supreme Court said, that's not good. We're not going to do that anymore. Now, did you hear that? Did you hear anything bad in there? We acknowledge our dependence upon thee. We beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. And the Supreme Court said, nope, not doing that anymore. We don't want that kind of stuff affecting our children. Now, Congress prays before each session. And their prayers go in the congregational or the, the congressional record. Another Supreme Court case just eight years later in 1970, some kids decided to take the prayers that Congress prayed and read them out loud in school. Supreme Court said, nope, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. Now, he gives a better understanding of it in his sermon, but but here's what I'm trying to tell you, that prayer, our relationship with God has been stolen. It's been moved out It's been taken over by those that don't want us to pray, that don't want us to know our God. It doesn't change the fact that you're His. You belong to the Lord. Now that was 1962, 1970. Can you imagine where it is now? We've got to wake up to the fight that we're in. It's a spiritual battle. It's it's not a battle of philosophy, although that's involved. This is a, a direct frontal assault that's been going on for years 
by the people that are not siding with our Lord in the church of Jesus Christ has just been anemic. We've been paralyzed by this thing. We don't fight the way the world fights. The weapons of our war are not carnal. We fight with prayer. We fight with truth. We fight with holy living. It's, it's God's call upon our lives. We're his people. Point number two. What do God's people do? We know whose we are. What do we do? I love this. Rejoice at the glory of God. Some of you were looking for a word that started with P, weren't you? Don't do it that way all the time. Rejoice at the glory of God. Look what it says in verse 9. That you, the people of God, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, this is an interesting section here. The word declare here means proclaim. John MacArthur in his study Bible makes this interesting point. Declare is an unusual word found in no other place in the New Testament. It means to tell forth, to tell something not otherwise known. In other words, God's people have a singular responsibility to declare, proclaim. And it's such a unique responsibility. I'm only going to use this word once. Here's your job description, Christians. Declare, proclaim. Now, what do you declare and proclaim? Look at the second word there. The word is praises. Now, that's a plural noun. It means eminent qualities, excellencies, or virtues. What are we to praise? Who are we to praise? We are to praise the multifaceted glory of God. The Bible says that some of us, when we come to worship, we worship with our lips, but our hearts are far, far from Him. What Jesus, if you're the people of God, you've got to learn how to declare the virtues, the excellencies of our God. You only can do that by knowing Him. Theologians for years have tried to describe the incredible majesty of God. God created the heavens and the earth. Tolkien said, you and I are sub-creators. It's our responsibility to reflect God in all that we do. As we, as we go through life, our job is to be in awe of the majesty and the glory of God. Stop long enough to just look and see the creator of our creation. It starts there. But it, it doesn't stop there. He's our sustainer. We go to him in prayer. We can know him. Granted, in different ways, but... We can know him as he reveals, reveals himself to us. All the time we are telling ourselves, man, that's amazing. God is so glorious. When's the last time you said, God is glorious. Father, I praise you. The word glory in scripture is doxa in Greek. It's where you get the word doxology. We're uttering a praise to the Lord. We get so beat up with the circumstances of life. All we got to do sometimes is just stop and say, Father, I thank you. I give you glory for who you are. There are spiritual recharging times when we give glory to the Lord. God's people rejoice at the glory of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you're having a hard time giving God glory, just look at Jesus. Just take some time and go to scripture and look at Jesus. See how he treats people. He's amazing. When the batteries need to be recharged, just go to look at Jesus. And then don't just read about him. Stop and convince your own heart as to his glory. In the older days, in the Puritans' days, they used to call that meditation. You're telling your heart. You're telling yourself about the glory of God. You don't let that moment pass. You've got to convince yourself of the glory of God, if you will. 
His praises are his virtues, his excellencies. So you and I are getting to declare through song or through conversation the amazing God that we serve. When's the last time the people of God have done that? The reason we're anemic in this country is because God's people have been convinced that they should be ashamed of this wonderful God that we serve. What the devil will do is he'll say, oh, you, you people, you are sinners. And they're right. We are sinners. But don't you dare let them say, your God is terrible. Your God is awful. We don't serve a God like that. One of the most amazing things I see about Jesus is this. And there are many more things that are amazing about Jesus. Here he is going to the cross. They're beating him. They're spitting on him. They're putting a crown of thorns on him. Now, if that was me, I can tell you how I'd respond as best I could to get out of that situation. He took it for them. To die for them and for us. Don't you find that amazing? When they uttered their false charges, he didn't say a word. Pilate comes to him and says, don't you know that I have the power to change your circumstances? And Jesus says, Pilate, you would have no power if we're not given to you from above. He knew who was in control. He knew who was in charge. He was amazed because he was amazing. And you and I need to have that same conviction that we need to be amazed of how great and glorious and awesome our God is. When is the last time you declared his praises? But the devil, the devil in the world wants to convince you that your God is not worth serving. There's an old illustration that preachers have used for years. And it, it, it's in ancient Rome, they used to make statues to their gods. And, and it was a lucrative business, so you got a bunch of people out there just, hey, I'm going to become a statue maker, make a little money on the side. And they would make statues of their gods. But because of the imperfections of the sculptor, the statue ended up having imperfections too. So in order to sell them, they came up with an ingenious plan. They would take wax and melt it and put it in the statue, kind of cover over the flaws. And there was a spiritual meaning there. The god had to be repaired. The statue of the God had to be fixed from its flaws. So what the good sculptures began to do, the sculptors began to put a little phrase on their statues, and that phrase was sign Sarah, which means without wax. Their God had no imperfections. Their statue had no imperfections. Let me ask you a question. Does your God have imperfections? Let me put, make it, let's make it practical. Are you disappointed right now because of something in your life? We talk about the power of God, and we love it. We talk about the presence of God, and we love it. But we question God's wisdom based on our circumstances that we walk through. Are you upset this morning about the circumstances of your life, yes or no? If you're a child of God, there are no imperfections in our God. He knows what he's doing. Our circumstances go through his filter. He's God. If he can deal with me and you, we're talking about the whole universe here. Many years ago, R.C. Sproul was giving a sermon. He was talking about the galaxies. There are billions of galaxies with billions of stars. And God knows each of those stars by name. Do we really conceive about how big and amazing our God is? Or do we get so focused on our circumstances and our problem that we forget the perfection of our God? We are to declare our God knows and is good. And we don't let the world steal that from us. We don't let the world tell us about our God. We tell them 
about the glories of our God. He's wonderful and he's loving. The rest of this text, Peter focuses on one of those virtues, one of those excellencies, one of those things we give God glory for. Look what it is in point three. We're to reflect the mercy of God. We're to reflect the mercy of God. Mercy. Because it says in verse 10, You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This comes from the, ch- the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23. Again, Peter's going back to the Old Testament. He's saying, I know this applied to Israel, but children, uh, now, Christians, this applies to you too. Notice what he says. If you're a child of God, God chose you to declare his praises. You've received mercy. Now, mercy is an interesting word. It's interchangeable with the word compassion, but we, it's not just a, a feeling, oh, I feel sorry for you. Uh, yesterday I was driving and somebody right in front of me had their tire go out, just flying all over the place. And, I, oh, I feel sorry for you. Sometimes I pulled over, I didn't yesterday. But, you know, we have that feeling sometimes that, oh, I feel sorry for you. The word mercy here is compassion, but it also adds action to it. You do something about it. The classic illustration is the Good Samaritan. Two people went by, they felt sorry. The third one came by and did something about it. And what this is saying here is the reason that you're God's child and the reason you give him glory is because God's mercy is compassion with action. He did something about it. He felt sorry for us and he did something about it. Again, look at the quote in your outline. Mercy is synonymous with compassion and essentially involves God's sympathy with, sinner, sympathy with sinners' misery and is withholding from them the just punishment for their sins. I think we often forget that when you became a Christian, by God's mercy, you and I have been spared the wrath to come. Again, I don't think we understand this all in all simply because we've not been to eternity which speaks of, a, of heaven and a hell. But for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and can declare to his praises, God has shown us mercy, not only in forgiveness of our sins, but in our eternal destiny and the consequences of our decisions. You see, when you and I choose to sin, there's a built-in consequence on earth, but there's also an eternal consequence in the days to come. And God in his mercy says, look, child of God, I'm so wise, I'm so powerful. I'm going to give you my mercy so that you're going to be free from some of the consequences eternally that will come. And in his grace, he graciously does that for us. You know, have you ever had, some, have you ever had somebody that you didn't like because they did something to you? And you chose as an act of your will to bless them anyway. Has anybody ever done that for you? They've chosen to show you love. Well, that's what Jesus did. He should have righteously allowed us the wages of sin is death. But God stepped in, showed us mercy, and he says, I'm going to send my son to the cross for you. And I'm going to take away, by my mercy, I'm going to take away the wrath that's supposed to come. You and I are the beneficiaries of that truth. God's mercy, I don't think we'll ever understand this side of heaven. It is so amazing. It's his patience, his kindness, that leads us to repentance. Perhaps this illustration will help. I, I, I saw this and I was just so, I thought it was so funny. And I think it's in Canada. Librarians at a Catholic school got a surprise. A book came in the mail that was checked out 32 years ago. 
with a little note attached. Sorry. Just 32 years overdue. Call it Catholic guilt. They did a quick calculation as to the fine that would be owed on that book. $1,149.91. That's a pretty hefty fine to pay a librarian. The funny thing is, is that a girl named Rosie Rowe, the school's chief of administration, who opened the parcel, was a student at the school when the book was checked out. She said, I would have recognized the name, but they left it anonymous. I would have recognized the name. But here's what she said. The fine has been forgiven. You don't have to pay the fine. That's mercy being demonstrated. Isn't that good? You know, we all have penalties for sin. But God in his mercy says, you know what? Because of my mercy, you're forgiven. But I don't know about you, but that makes me want to declare his praises. That's, what, that's who he is. You see, when we don't know who he is, we're not going to praise him. When we don't recognize his glory and his majesty, we're not going to give him glory. His mercy is one of the many characteristics of our great and holy God to give him glory. Now, let's finish this up. How do we impact America? We are a nation within a nation. We are God's children within a nation. And if we're going to make a difference in this country, we've got to realize we're different from this country. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Our fathers and our mothers and our spiritual heirs demonstrated that for us. You're here today because somebody took Jesus seriously. And for future generations, we also need to take Jesus seriously. We're the people of God, a holy nation. Wherever we go, we get to declare, man, have you, have you seen the glory of God? Have you recognized the majesty of Jesus Christ? You know what Jesus did for us on the cross? We get to declare or proclaim that. What an honor as an ambassador. That's our responsibility. Did not Jesus say when you pray, how do we, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are heaven's ambassadors, representatives right here and now by declaring his virtues. And we can be amazed at his mercy, among other things. That's how we make a difference. That's how we let our light shine in this land. Are you thankful? You know, America is a great country. I'm so thankful that God has placed the boundary lines for us in pleasant places. Because there's a lot of places in the world that you just don't have the freedoms that we have. Let's not lose them. Let's not take them for granted. Let's do what Peter says here. Remember whose we are. Remember what we're to do. Declare his praises. And let's remember who he is, his mercy. For the Bible tells us his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I love what it says in the book of Hosea, and this was also in Dr. Jefferson's sermon. He said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore you. I don't want to be ignored by the Lord. I don't want my children, my grandchildren to be ignored by the Lord. I want to give him honor, give him glory, and I pray you will too. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray that your word went forward today in a way that pleased you. I pray that your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, was instructive to our hearts today. Lord, we come with 
problems and difficulties in our own lives and we see what's happening in our land and we don't know what to do sometimes. Father, may we remember who you are. May we remember whose we are. And we may declare your praises to a generation that's turned their backs on you. Father, we pray for their repentance. We pray for those in our culture to know you, to see Jesus as he is, to have their lives changed. We pray for those that don't love you. We pray for those that don't love us. We pray their hearts will turn toward you. Father, above all, I pray as we go from this place, you'll give us hope. Hope for the future because we know you are in control. We thank you for your many blessings. Forgive us when we take them for granted. Father, touch each and every heart in this place. May we leave with hope in a massively wonderful, glorious God. And we declare your praise. Thank you for your mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, take him seriously. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Don't pass from that. The Bible tells us that you're loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That if you believe in him, you'll not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't ignore Jesus. As the church, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people belonging to God, take him seriously. Declare his praises. Because he's good. He's far more wonderful than we can even think or imagine, Paul said. And as we go from this place today, remember his mercy. They're new every morning. God might let you be an agent of change in somebody's life by showing them the mercy that you've received from the Lord. It's one way, it's one way you can reflect Jesus. Let's pray for our country. But let's pray for the church in our country that we can reflect Jesus Christ in a way that pleases the Father. And perhaps, once again, as he has in the past, he'll pour out his precious Holy Spirit and do a work here or the town over or the church over or for the pastor over there that God would pour out his blessings and responsibility so we can see the majesty and the glory of our God. I'm going to come to the front as we sing this hymn of invitation. If you want to come and pray with me, I'll be here. Let's all stand together.